The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you reign. Not just in the day of creation, in the days of creation, in the days of Abraham, in the days of Samuel, in the days of David. You reign today, and you will reign forevermore. Lord, turn our hearts from temporary, human, earthly kings. Help us today to set our heart and our rest and our trust and our confidence and our joy on you as our invisible but faithful king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a testimony of how God uses nearsighted preachers such as myself to accomplish his amazing work. When I pick sermon series, I usually like to go between Old Testament and New Testament. It ends up being New Testament in the fall, Old Testament in the spring, and then in the summer, we'll typically do what I call topical expository sermons. So this past summer, we did Ten Commandments. Summer before that, I think we did Jonah, which may not fit that, but we've done the Lord's Prayer and other things like that. Well, thinking into this semester, I thought I would like to do 1 Samuel because I love David. I love the life of David. And so I decided, okay, we're going to go ahead and go through 1 Samuel. Now, as I started to look into it, I realized it is very hard to just start with the life of David. So we needed to start at the beginning of 1 Samuel to get some of the the undergirding of it. David doesn't come in later until 14, 15, 16 chapter in 1 Samuel. And so now here we are. In the heart of 1 Samuel, and as we're going through, I'm thinking to myself, why in the world did I pick 1 Samuel? Like there is carnage, there is depression, there is just some really sad chapters. Why didn't I just skip it and go straight to David? But what I love is that God superintends our purposes. That God has purposes that we don't even see. This past week, I was... um, I didn't have to preach. Normally on Saturday nights, I'm, I'm up late working on the sermon, things like that. But I didn't have to preach last week because Pastor Chad preached. And so I turned on the TV. And, uh, and what I turned on was, a, was the Republican debate. I love debates, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever it is. I just like to hear uh, how people speak, but also I like to see what they're saying, what the values they hold, things of that sort. And if they were not wearing suits and ties, I might have mistaken it for a childhood playground. Because much of the rhetoric at the time was, you are a big fat liar, even a big fat liar than that other big fat liar. And I thought at one point they were going to call in the National Guard just to keep them off of one another. It was amazing how they were speaking towards one another. Now, not all of them were, and I'm not trying to, 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 to type all politicians or anything like that, but what I saw there was like watching a car accident. It's like, you don't want to see it, but you also don't want to turn away. It's like, what's going to happen? 
And so I'm watching this political debate, and then it strikes me that one of these candidates or one of the other candidates from the, other, from the, from the Democrats, it's soon going to be the most powerful man or woman in the entire world. And I look at that, and I kind of think to myself, uh-oh, <laughs> Uh-oh, this is, this is kind of scary. And, and since we are in this election season, this election marathon, it is so appropriate that we're looking into this book of 1 Samuel. It might be the best book we could study at this time, even though this is not exactly the passage that I wanted to study. You see, all of us are looking for a good leader, a righteous leader, a leader that will right every wrong, in our culture. This is a good desire put in us by God himself. In our culture, we don't use the title king for our leaders, but we might use titles like president or boss or coach, maybe dad, mom, maybe even pastor. And what we have done is taken our God-given desire for a king a God-given desire and hope for a king. And we have focused it on a visible person instead of an invisible God. And we have made these authority figures in our lives American idols. And so if you would please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 230. If you are in the Children's Bible, it is page 306. If you've been around Jacob's Well for a while, you've probably heard our definition of idolatry. Uh, it's Tim Keller's definition of idolatry, which is when you make a good thing an ultimate thing. Today, I want to take a narrow slice of that definition and say that idolatry includes when you make a good leader an ultimate leader. Now, before we dig in, I kind of want to share exactly with you where we are headed. And so this is kind of your spoiler alert. I'm going to lay it all out for you. There are three things I want to look at today. The first is the subtlety of American idols. Where might they be hiding in our hearts that we don't see them? Secondly, it's the slavery of American idols. What is the cost of making people in leadership roles idols in our life? The third is the scam of American idols. What does it promise that it cannot deliver? And so as we look at this passage, which was set in Israel 3,000 years ago, what we are going to see, one of the great, mysterious, magical things about Scripture is that it not only transcends time, but it also transcends cultures and applies very relevantly to us in America here today. And so let's look together at 1 Samuel chapter 8. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Lord, as we come to your word, reveal in our hearts those hidden idols that we don't see, that we might break their power over us and walk in freedom and in newness of life under your dominion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First, let's look at the subtlety of American idols. Verse 1 of chapter 8 of 1 Samuel says this through verse 5. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took brides and perverted justice. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Let's pause there for a minute. Samuel's boys were named Joel, which means Jehovah is God. The other was named Abijah, which is my father is Yahweh. These boys were raised by a man who, verse 5, affirms walked in the ways of the Lord. Their father was not only a godly man, he was also a judge over all of Israel. And he was not only a judge over all of Israel, he was actually a prophet. Something that I don't think any of us could claim for ourselves. He was a man who heard from God and then spoke for God. He was a prophet. He walked with God. These children, these boys had all the benefits of being raised in a home that loved and served the Lord. And yet they turned away from him to pervert justice. Now this passage doesn't tell us when that turn happened. It doesn't tell us if it happened before they were appointed judges or after they were appointed judges. But my assumption is that it was a slow, subtle phase, just like it is for every person. They probably started by perverting justice on little minor issues, little obstacles in the law to gain a small amount of money to overlook some small little incident. Subtly, in small ways, they started to take the kingship of God, which their father had taught them, and replaced it with the kingship of self. They lived for their own kingdom to promote their own glory. They started to pervert justice for personal gain. And as their consciences were seared and their hearts were hardened, they began to see more and more and more opportunities. And they began to get richer and bigger. And the brides came pouring in as they expanded their own kingdom. And this became their reputation. As we look at these first five verses, it is a great warning to children here today, to students here today. Your parents may be the best Christians in the church. They might be the best Christians in the world. And their faith is a blessing to you. But it does not save you. You need to sacrifice the idol of self, the kingship of self. And you need to place Christ on the throne of your heart and follow after him. It is not your parents' faith that will do this for you. It is your choice to do that. And so this is a warning right from the get-go of the idolatry of self and the need to sacrifice, to dethrone ourselves and crown Christ king of our life. And so this is the picture that we're looking at. Samuel's sons are corrupt. He's getting old. They need a replacement. What are they going to do? Let's look back at verse 4 through verse 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, 
from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now, this is a very interesting response from God. It's very interesting that God is offended by this because if you look at some of the backstory of this, what you see is when Israel is coming out of Egypt, when they're wandering through the wilderness, God actually gives them permission and makes provision for a human king. You can read along up here on the screen, but in Deuteronomy 17, 14, we read this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, And then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. Now it continues with a description of that king. But what's so interesting as we read these verses here in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 17, we read pretty much the same things that these elders are saying in Israel. And so as we read it in Deuteronomy and then rehear it in 1 Samuel, the question we're struck with is why is God so offended by this? Why is God so offended by the request for a king? Well, if we continue to read on in Deuteronomy 17, we read what God is looking for in a king. Not only is this king to be chosen by God, not by the people, but it is to be a king that won't chase after women or riches. It's to be a king that will submit himself to the priests, a king that will never stop reading and learning from God's word, a king that will acknowledge that the Lord is God over him and that he is just a subservient king to the king of kings. The problem with Israel's request is very subtle. It's not simply that they wanted a king It's they wanted a king unlike the king God wanted for them. You see, God wanted a king that was a man after God's own heart, but they wanted a king that would lead them into battle. They wanted a king that would make Israel great again. You see, in some ways, the problem with the elders' request for a king wasn't that they were asking too much. It's that they were asking too little. They simply wanted a king like the nations, one that was tall, dark, and handsome, that would govern them and lead them in military victory. The elders of Israel didn't want a king that was under the submission of God's authority. They wanted a king to replace God's authority. They wanted their ultimate king to be a visible human king, not an invisible, a divine king. Now, the elders of Israel would probably have never said this verbally. They wouldn't have said, we want a king to replace God. They would have never said that. They knew that that was not right. But God looks through their words and he looks into their hearts And God responds by saying, they have rejected me from being king over them. You know, this is so sad because just last chapter, we read this great story in which Israel grieved over their sin. They grieved over their treason against God. They took their foreign gods, and it says they put them away. Their statues of Baal and their statues of Ashtaroth, they took those statues and they put them away. But once again, we see them surging back into idolatry. This time, it wasn't in the form of stone statues. It was much more subtle. It was in the form of a human king. And that's why God says, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, the day that they put away all their stone statues, even to this day, 
They have been forsaken me and serving other gods. We have hearts that manufacture idols, that produce idols, that kick idols out constantly. Israel was having the same issue of idolatry that they were having before, but this time it was not with a stone statue. It was with a human person. It's a much subtle version of the same problem of idolatry. They wanted to worship a champion. They wanted to worship a future king. They wanted to put their hope and their security in the future king of Israel. You know, this political season, one of the phrases that has been thrown around a lot is that we want to make America great again. And people have rallied around this slogan, putting their hope and their trust in these politicians to make America great again. Well, there's this gentleman named Russell Moore, who's the president of Ethics and Religious Liberty for the Southern Baptist Convention. And he wrote an article that really made a lot of uh, waves throughout America. He posted on his blog and it was republished in USA Today and many other newspapers. But the title of it is this. He says, sorry, the Bible doesn't promise to make America great again. And then he goes on, and it's a lengthy article. I want to read some of it to you, cut some of it out. It's hard to cut much of it out because it's really good. But he says this, sometime around the 4th of July or Memorial Day, you might see a sign advertising God and country, rally or prayer breakfast. I can almost guarantee that if you attend, you'll hear at least once 2 Corinthians 7.14, which reads, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Often the way this verse will be preached in many evangelical pulpits is a rallying cry. In so many sermons, the people referred to in the passage are the American people, and the land is the American land. But the fact is, Second Chronicles 7.14 isn't talking about America or national identity or some generic sense of revival. This verse is a word written to a specific people, the people of God, who were coming home from exile. They were coming home from a time in which they were dominated and enslaved by a foreign power, at a time when they needed to be reminded of who they were, who God was, and what he had promised to do. When God said to them, if my people who are called by my name, he was specifically pointing them back to the covenant that he made with their forefather Abraham. At a specific point in their history, God had told Abraham about his descendants saying, I will be their God and they will be my people. And that's what my people means. God reminded a people who had been exiled, enslaved and defeated that a rebuilt temple or a displaced nation could not change who they were. They were God's people and would see the future God has for them. If we don't understand the question of who we are first and foremost as a people of God, then we are going to miss this. If we take this text and bypass the people of God, applying it to the America in general or the Bible Belt in particular, as though our citizenship as Americans or Australians or Albanians is the foundation of the covenant God has made with us, the problem is not just that we are misinterpreting the text. The problem is, is that we are missing 
Christ. You see, our primary identity is not as Americans. That is not our primary citizenship. Our primary citizenship is in heaven. Our primary identity is Christian. We are in Christ. We are his children. That is where our ultimate allegiance aligns. And although God does not promise to make America great, he promises that against the church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. That the church shall last throughout all eternity and will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we do not set our hope and our trust in politicians or in America. We set our hope and trust in Christ because he has made a promise to his people, which is not a nationality, but it is the church. It is the church that he loved and gave his life up, life up for. And so we see in this election season, this subtlety of human idolatry. Now, just to be very clear, there is nothing wrong with someone being a politician. I hope there are many Christians that become politicians. But a politician cannot carry the freight of a divine king. A politician cannot satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. A politician cannot carry through on all the promises that they make. I love how they say, we're going to lower the debt, lower taxes, and give free college. It's like, how is that going to happen? And so there is nothing wrong with politicians. There's nothing wrong with talking about politicians and promoting some politicians and voting for politicians. It's our duty to do that. But do not put on them what only God can handle. Our idolatry of human leaders is subtle and it's dangerous. And the reason it's so dangerous is because it leads to slavery. Look with me in verse 9. This is the Lord talking to the prophet Samuel. He says, now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. What is the cost of human idolatry? Slavery. The king will take their children to serve in his military and in his palace. He will divide up your families. This king will take the best of your food off your tables and the animals off your land. He doesn't just take what he needs. He takes whatever he wants. This king will take a tenth of the produce and the animals and your income. He will add above and beyond the tenth that you're to give to the temple. This king will take your servants and your employees and put them to his work, making your work harder. 
Then at the end of verse 17, it gives this very concise summary statement of the cost of a human king. And it says, you shall be his slaves. You know, we value freedom in America, and rightfully so. And there are many freedoms that we are so tremendously blessed with. But to be honest, in many ways, we are not truly free. You see, we are all slaves to our greatest passions. Let me just give you this example. When Trish and I moved from Bloomer, Wisconsin to St. Louis to go to seminary, we had no kids, but we had two dogs that we kind of treated like kids. One of them was named Deuteronomy, and we called him Doot, and the other one was Tyson. And we moved down there, and we wanted to keep our dogs, so we couldn't rent an apartment or rent whatever, so we needed to buy a house. So we decided, okay, we're going to buy a house. We want to live this American dream. The problem was is we still had a house for sale up in Bloomer, Wisconsin. And so we served this king, this American dream king, and it put us in absolutely bondage. We were paying two mortgages. Trisha was working. I was in school, which means not only was I not earning money, I was draining our bank account. But because we went to serve this king, it put us into slavery. Can any of you relate to that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Whatever king you serve will enslave you. In so many ways, we have such great blessing, but all of us are slaves to something. We're slaves to our primary passion. We're slaves to that which is king in our life. If, we, if our primary passion is alcohol, what will it do? It will take our money. It will divide our family. It will steal our freedom. If our primary passion is hunting, it will take our money. It will divide our family. It will take our freedom. If our primary passion is our children, those little kings, it will divide our family. It will consume a lot of money. It consumes money anyways, but it will consume even more money. And it will steal your freedom. There are literally hundreds of things that you can place up as your king. It could be sports, video games, shopping, career success, theological brilliance, flawless reputation, a clean house, early retirement, romantic stimulation, food, drink, entertainment. And here's the thing, not one of those is wrong. Not one of those is sinful. Not one of those is bad. As a matter of fact, every single one of those is a gift from God. But when we take that good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it enslaves us. You know, this principle applies to human authorities as well, even human spiritual authorities. You know, one of the things that has surprised me about planting Jake as well is how many of you come through that door weak and wounded, wounded by previous pastors, previous churches, maybe even wounded by this church and this pastor. When our pastors fail us, not if our pastors fail us, but when our pastors fail us. It's appropriate to be sad. It's appropriate to have righteous anger. But if the failure of your pastor leads you to utter despair, leads you to question your faith, leads you to hate Christ's church, who Christ loves, then could it be that your pastor 
was actually your American idol? Could it be that you are bitter and angry and crushed because your idol was unable to carry the freight that you placed upon him? One of my favorite stories is about um, this preacher named Henry Ward Beecher. He was scheduled to preach at a church. It was in the 1800s. He couldn't make it that Sunday. And so he asked his brother Thomas to go for him instead. Of course, nobody knew Thomas was coming instead. They didn't have Twitter or Facebook or internet or any of those things. And so his brother got up and got into the pulpit. And as he got up in the pulpit, several of the members of the church began to leave. And from the pulpit, Thomas said, all those that have come to worship Henry Ward Beecher, please leave. All those that have come to worship the Lord, please stay. There is this new term in Christian, I don't know, circles, maybe you've heard of it, the cult of personality. There are pastors that get so big that they can't get dethroned. We know stories of that, maybe you've heard. Seattle, there's a great story of that. It is so extremely dangerous. You've probably heard me say this several times. And to be honest, I'd love to, 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 to engrave this on my tombstone. Here lays Pastor Dan Jackson, and then below it, this phrase, pastors make bad saviors. Pastors make bad saviors because pastor makes bad kings. And you know what? Pastors make bad pastors. Pastors are messed up people sitting at the feet of Jesus, the ultimate king. You know, I know we all have our God-given preferences when we come to worship on Sunday mornings, but if your primary reason to come to church is to hear Pastor Chad play music or to hear Pastor Dan preach, I'm not going to tell you to leave. I'm going to tell you to repent and turn to a greater pastor. Turn to Pastor Jesus. Come and worship Worship the Trinitarian God. Enjoy him in song and in prayer and in the preaching of his word and the sacrament and in the fellowship of his people. Come to worship God, not his people. All of us will enslave ourselves to someone or something. And I want to exhort you today to enslave yourself to Jesus Christ. He is the best master you can ever have. Count yourself slaves to Christ. Let him be your supreme passion because he is a good master, a perfect master, and a loving master. And so we've seen the subtlety of American idols, the slavery of American idols. Next, the scam of American idols. I so badly wanted to label this main point the stupidity of American idols, but it's a bad word in our house, so I can't say it here. But as I walk through 18 through 22, you're going to see just how stupid this is. Okay, I, I don't know how else to say it. It's just, it's dumb. Maybe I could say that, but it doesn't start with the letter S. So I had to say stupid. <laughs> but read with me, verse 18. All in that day, you will cry out because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, not whom the Lord has cho- chosen, but whom you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And then here's their tragic response. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Now let's pause for a second. Samuel was batting a thousand. He was a hundred percent on all of his prophecies. Everything that he predicted would come true came true. And all the people of Israel knew this. They knew that whatever he said came true because it came from the Lord a hundred percent of the time. 
And so here he is making this prophecy. If you make somebody king, he will enslave you. He will take everything away from you. You will cry out for mercy. You will be under bondage. And yet they said, we don't care. See how stupid it is? And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you remember last week? That really awkward stomp. That was awesome. Just kept going. You thought it was going to stop and it didn't. Do you remember that? And Chad talked about the Philistines coming, right? And he read those verses. 1 Samuel 7.10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day again, the Philistines, and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. I can't read and do it at the same time. It's too hard. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzvah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth Car. The Lord provided this great victory. And you know what? Israel didn't have to form an army. They never had to. They didn't need to. But this king that they wanted, they wanted him to form a military, to lead them into battle, to triumph over their enemies. It is so stupid to follow our idols because God is such a better king. Now, what's so interesting here is that God wants to warn them again and again and again, but they continue to refuse. And so finally, he brings judgment upon them. And the way that God brings judgment upon Israel is he just gives them what they want. Verse 21, and when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. You know, one of the greatest judgments God brings upon us is to simply give us what we want when we refuse to listen to his word. You know, I'm guessing some of you are here still saying, I don't have any American idol leaders in my life. As a matter of fact, I hate leaders in my life. But sometimes the way God reveals idols to us is by what we hate. Quick illustration, I hate doing dishes. I hate doing dishes. Can I get an amen? Anybody? <laughs> I hate doing dishes. The reason I hate doing dishes is because doing dishes happens at 8.30 p.m. after a long day when the kids are in bed and what I want to do is veg out in front of the TV. That's why I hate dishes. And so doing dishes, which I hate, reveals my idol, which is, which is vegging out in front of the TV. If you hate politicians, if you hate the president, if you hate this, this candidate or that candidate, could it be that you hate them because that is your idol? Because you have put a stock in this position to make your life great and they have utterly failed you. And so we see the stupidity of human idolatry. Let me end with this. I'm guessing many of you have heard of the show American Idol. It's been said that it's unparalleled in broadcast history. Even a rival TV executive said that it was the most impactful show in the history of television. It's been recognized as a springboard launching many singers to become pop idols. The popularity of the show um, started to decline, and this is actually the final year 
Maybe you may know, may not know, doesn't matter. But what we see in this show is the unprecedented popularity testifies that all of our hearts long for human idols to worship. But what it shows that it's going out of season, that it's going to be done, is that human idols always grow old. They always let us down. Our American idols, whatever form they might take, stir in us a good desire for a king, but they are longing that cannot be, that cannot be fulfilled in them. They always leave us wanting and frustrated and angry because they can never satisfy our longing for a heavenly king, a longing that can only be fulfilled by King Jesus. You know, it's so interesting when you look in the Gospels, during the, the three-year ministry of Jesus, there are times where it says that they tried to take Jesus by force and make him king. And what would he do? He'd run away. He didn't want to be their political Messiah. But then you come to the Passion Week, and he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and they sing, Hail, King of the Jews, and he accepts their worship. And then he stands before Pilate and he acknowledged that indeed he is king. And then the soldiers crown him with, a, with a, thorn of, a crown of thorns and they beat it into him and they mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then Pilate on the cross above Jesus places this sign listing out his offenses and says, Here is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Jesus it's the king that satisfies because Jesus is the king that satisfies our greatest need. Our greatest need is a relationship with God. King Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin, and he rose to life to bring us into relationship with God. And when King Jesus returns... He will satisfy every longing of your soul that no human leader can ever satisfy. Revelations 19 says this. It's looking forward into the new heavens and the new earth when Christ will return. And says this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, talking about Jesus. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, Remember, who is your hope? Who is your king? Jesus is our king. No election can change that. Jesus is the one king that can save us. Jesus is the one king that will bring forth that perfect kingdom. Jesus is the only king that can satisfy our souls. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for providing a king that we long for. Thank you for providing Jesus. Lord, as we turn to the Lord's table, we thank you that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May we take these elements with, with awe and reverence that our king did not stay in heaven, but came to earth to bring us to himself. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.